You're listening to Ink Studs on CITR 101.9 FM. My guest this week is Craig Thompson. Uh, Craig is probably very familiar to a lot of listeners. Um, his book, Blankets, which came out in... Was it 2002? I don't even look. 2003. 2003. Uh, it was kind of a breakthrough book. Uh, got a lot of acclaim, a lot of attention. And since then, uh, Craig's been hibernation, uh, working on his... Um, Opus uh, Habibi uh, coming out pretty soon I guess within the next couple of weeks or maybe yeah, when I, I air like this three weeks maybe okay um, two weeks two weeks in the middle of September so I don't know if I'm going to air this when I'm going to air this but sometime around probably <laughs> so we'll pretend it's Perfect. out now uh, as well as your first book uh, Goodbye Chunky Rice and um the in-betweener between Blankets and Habibi, uh, Carnet de Voyage. Um, you probably pronounce it better than I would, wouldn't you? No, that sounds that sounds fan- fine. My, <laughs> my French skills have completely deteriorated. I have. Disintegrated entirely, actually. <laughs> I took French for a couple of years at school, and I don't know. It, 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 it's all fallen away. My girlfriend mocks me for my yeah, lack of French. It, it seems like especially uh, relevant for you being up in Canada. Well, I'm in, I'm not in so Van- much in Vancouver. It, it would be the same as me saying, hey, you're in America. Shouldn't you speak Spanish? Because a lot of people there speak Spanish. In fact, probably more people in America ratio probably speak Spanish than French to Canada. Yeah, no, you're right. And that's another shortcoming of mine. But you speak some some French, so you've got some some skills. I don't know. Yeah, but no, I'm just a typical white trash monolingual American <laughs> Midwesterner. <laughs> yep. Yep. Well, thank you, uh, Craig, for taking the time to chat with me um, today. Robin. I guess it's funny going through your work. It's a lot of work, um, and it's a lot of big pieces. And I'm used to more folks kind of getting little work and kind of development, but it's like you kind of develop in kind of leaps and bounds. Thank it's, you. Well, it's it's interesting because you, you do this, you do a, a little book, and you do a bigger book, and then you do a bigger book, or I guess about the same size. Is it the same size as Blankets? It's about 100 pages longer than 100 blankets. pages long, okay. But also, you do so much, it seems like you've done so much research into that book as far as like some of the uh, narrative traditions you're touching on and stuff. But I guess Blankets, you're also kind of doing your own personal research into yourself, so it's a lot of stuff. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, and I guess maybe to start out, let's get a little bit of background on your own cartooning past, um, how you kind of got into the cartooning scene, and what were some of your early breakthrough comics that really showed you that's the way you wanted to go? Uh, well, I, th- I think uh, John Porcelino is pretty much responsible for kickstarting my whole career in comics. Because in the uh, 90s, he was doing the Spit and Half distribution mm-hmm. uh, catalog, which was for like mini comics and zines and, you know, like music, seven inches and whatnot. Uh, and... I think very early on I was ordering stuff from his catalog and I sent him some of my minis and he got excited and ordered more. He was the first person to order my book 
And then um, I started like uh, hearing back from other readers and sort of growing a community around that. Um, I should start that I've always loved comics as a little kid. And uh, part of the reason that I connected with them so like intimately is because of, well, one, I grew up in this sort of lower working class family. So we're, we didn't have access to like the arts or literature. Um, other than the most accessible of forms, which was like the Sunday Funnies. And that was the only newspaper we got, was the Sunday uh, Delivery. And, uh, and I obsessed over Sunday Funnies. And, uh, and then when my brother and I started working in the ginseng fields, so once we started our agricultural careers, is when we started having spending money for uh, amassing our own comics collection. And, um, and, and the fortunate thing is like, uh, well, it was the one medium in the house that was uncensored. It was such a religious household that, like, uh, all the movies and television and music was all monitored and censored by my parents. Like, there was no secular music allowed in the house. Mm -hmm. There was no PG-13 movies. We had to watch the most watered-down TV shows, like Full House or something. Uh, but comics, because they were just perceived as pure, like, children's entertainment, were, were unmonitored. And so I, that's where my brother and I were sort of able to access the most edgy entertainment. That's, I think, why I bonded with it, or it, it imprinted itself on me creatively. Mm -hmm. Is that kind and of then, cult, cultural taboo that you, they didn't know? Yeah, no, yeah, it was just like, it was. they were just completely overlooked. They were kids' books. Yeah. And the fact that they had that reputation, like, benefited us. Um and uh, and 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 added to that, we grew up in such a small town that there wasn't there wasn't comic stores around. Instead, we uh, used those like uh, mail order ads in the back of the comic books. And so uh, we were ordering stuff from New England Comics on the East Coast, oh, and that okay. really uh, opened up, you know, what we had access to that we wouldn't have found like on the you know the small town newsstand. So what kind of stuff was it at that point? Was it just like Marvel Comics or DC Comics? or? Uh, I definitely went through a Marvel X-Men, X-Factor stage. X-Factor. Uh, mostly we were obsessed from an early age with the whole black and white, funny animals, and indie explosion. So the Turtles, but and then all the awful offshoots of the Turtles, like the radioactive Black Belt Hamsters, and also... Um, good stuff like Usagi Ojimbo and The Tick which was being published by New England Comics mm -hmm. um, and then some of those earliest imports of uh, manga so everything from uh, the Mazume Shiro uh, Appleseed and the Akira the colored ones from Epic and uh, stuff like that I don't but know we were obsessed oh and Tank Girl from Dark Horse and actually a lot of the Dark Horse books we loved Stupid things like Boris the Bear, and then, like you know, flaming parrot. Uh, so very early on, I loved black and white, and I loved the more edgy, independent stuff. I did I had a lot. I had very little interest in superheroes. Do you? Is that one of the reasons why you work in black and white? Is that early attraction to it? Yeah, it's still for me the most ideal aesthetic. I had a conversation with Blutch when. Uh, on my last France trip, which has been a while now, but we both agreed that black and white is is the ideal. It's the most pure for making comics, which might be uh, like uh, 
these days in the indie comic scene, it's like everybody seems to be working in color. But I don't know. I at some point I might do it, but I want. I'm still resisting. I love just the purity and the the uh, the handwritten quality of just black ink on white paper. It it all depends on the person's work whether or not they know how to work in black and white. Well, yeah, and when I'm reading other people's work, like Chris Ware or Jason, the Norwegian cartoonist, mm-hmm. I love the color in those books. It's just that I don't have the same impulse to to play with it in my own work. I think Michael DeForge is an interesting example of someone who kind of is able to do that balance, and you can kind of really see where he's working in black and white, just how strong it is. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'd agree. I, and yeah, Jordan Crane. Yeah. What, whether he's doing his up, you know, up to uh, I'm sorry, uptight in black and white. I mean, he's a master of color, so. Yeah, it's uh, he's a fascinating guy when you get talking into color theory of how like he creates his colors and. Well, yes, the, Jordan is like a a design genius and 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 maybe a production genius. No, definitely a production. <laughs> <laughs> Who doesn't want to do production anymore? <laughs> yeah, understandable. Yeah, uh, and that's something you, we'll get into a little later because you've got some experience in that too, from understand. Um, so when did you? So you started making comics before you got into the John Portal scene and stuff. What kind of stuff were you doing when you're doing mini comics at that point? Um, uh, I was really inspired a lot by a Jay Stevens, and. Uh, so I was doing funny animals. Well, I guess that that you know a tribute to what I loved as a kid too. I was doing funny animals, but with a little, like a black humor edge. Like that's what appealed to me. I love this idea of like real cartoony, cutesy characters as a vehicle for sort of darker or more melancholy themes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chunky Rice obviously is more on the melancholy, but I think my mini comics work were a little bit more edgy and and uh, black humorish. Um, and, and in fact, the first person who ever contacted me um, about my mini-comics was uh, Michelle Verna, another Canadian, um, who was running Black Eye Press in the 90s, and that was hands down my favorite publisher. So they were publishing uh, Jay Stevens um, and, okay, uh, and they did, Dylan uh, Horrocks, you know, all the yeah. original Jason Lutz. Jason Lutz, yeah, all everything they did, and I think... It was the flavor of Black Eye that I was so attached to. There was something about them, like the surface appeal was sort of a, a little bit cartoony and really accessible um, and appealing, but then the content was, was edgy and, and dark and humorous, all those things, you know? It had the right balance. There's something about the design aesthetic with some of those books, too, which oh, I always find exactly. interesting. Like, I actually prefer those earlier editions. I see, like, the Black Eye than some of the latter with like the drawn and quarterly editions which is odd because normally you look at design and like drawn and quarterly is kind of like that pinnacle definitely that's yeah michelle verna is another one of those like design geniuses in comics like he really brought that design aesthetic i don't know what's happened to him since but he brought that you know his design skills to every book that he published and um yeah He, he in some ways he seemed like one of the first guys doing that in the indie comic scene as a publisher, I mean, yeah. obviously, people like Dan Klaus and Chris Ware and, and the Hernandez brothers all had their own design aesthetics in place. I don't even know. Klaus and Ware, I'll agree. I don't think the Hernandez cared much about the design. Okay. I don't know. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> it's, 
it's it's funny because you look at those early fanographics books like so ugly <laughs> yeah they kind of jump all over the place there must have been ones i mean some of them the covers they create are like great album covers like they're very yeah. uh and then there's other ones that do seem a little slapdash in terms of design or maybe a little pedestrian in yeah terms of design. I, know, I just mean generally like the earlier fanographics books like as a line some of the other stuff was pretty brutal looking for quite a while yeah uh, <laughs> uh, but I, I lost my thread a little bit there. So, uh, yeah, I was doing these basically funny animals with a sort of dark, either um, a morbid or even scatological edge to them, but funny and sweet all at the same time. And uh, and and I had I jumped ahead of the fact that during high school I wasn't really interested in comics. I sort of fell out of love with the medium during those years when I was trying to be cool and popular. Actually, I was not really trying to be popular, but I was caught up in skateboarding, and then um, sort of my interest in drawing uh, was transferred to animation. Animation at that time seemed to me like a cooler sort of <laughs> venue. Yeah. But by the end of my high school years, I was really uh, disillusioned with animation. Like and just. When you oh, mean I'm animation, starting... what do you mean by animation? Just clarification. Uh, well, that's why well, I, I wanted, I went through different phases as all of us do in high school. Like one, uh, I got, I got very serious about my future and I thought maybe I would work at a small town graphic design firm and design truck ads. That's when I was trying to be sensible. And then, uh, and then I was like, no, I want to have a more exciting life than that. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and I sort of was fishing around and then and got really excited by animation and and it went through different phases I mean at one point it was very mainstream interest in in like Disney style animation um, and then you know I also had uh, edgier sort of you know Svankmeyer Brothers Quay sort of like um, you know obsessions yeah but uh, but at a certain point I realized that for better or for worse in animation I would end up being like a cog in a machine like um, you know, there's no way that that one person could have all the control. And maybe that's shifted now with, like, the easiness of, like, some digital animation techniques. But, uh, but, but also, also by the end of my high school years, I was caught up in that sort of, like, uh, existentialist sort of slackerdom grunge era thing. So I just wanted to live in a van or on a commune, and I didn't want to have a job. Um... And around that time is when I rediscovered comics and, and saw them as this sort of punk rock DIY medium because one person could do it all. And, you know, like mini comics were huge, as were zines, pre-internet. And it was just this uh, amazing form for self-expression where one person could do it all. And, uh, and so I made these meager little funny animal comics that I printed at Kinko's. Now... A while ago, quite a while ago, there was talk of doing a collection of your earlier strips. Is that still in the works, or is that something you kind of... Kind no, of it's in still past? in the works. I have I have all the, the material scanned. There's still, like, a few pages where I, I have to find, like, higher-quality uh, photocopies or reference to, like, get a nice, clean scan. Um, but the thing that's been delaying me is that I want to uh, do, like... A hundred pages of new material to make it worth it, because mm -hmm. you know it's always a little shameful for an artist to release their their 
whatever their earliest work, formative work. Um, and so to make it worth the reader's while, I want to make sure there's new material that might be more substantial. But also as a reader myself, I, I love reading the formative work of other cartoonists. Yeah. So I think like with Chester Brown, that Little Man collection is is probably one of his books that I revisit the most because of its some of its flaws. That's what makes it enticing. Like the man who couldn't stop. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's from Ed the Happy Clown, though, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is actually. I just I I have the all my yummy furs all bound into one big old book. Oh yes, is that the picture that's on the Drawn and Quarterly blog? No, I don't think there's a picture on the D and Q no, blog. It's... Someone bringing Some... a yummy fur bound collection to yeah, show to Chester Brown. Yeah, I think that was at San Diego. And it's not you. It's not me. It's your competition. Yeah, no, it's that. That's okay. I, I'm happy if more people collect those because some of the Chester stuff is unfortunately never to be reprinted. How, so, how many pages is that? Oh, well, I mean, I did the Yummy Furs and the Underwaters because the Underwaters have the Gospels in them. Yeah. So we're looking probably forty issues. Uh, I'd say it's at least maybe thousand page book. Just thinking, wow. it's big. Oh, that's amazing. You could, why doesn't that? Why doesn't that exist on the stands? A matter of time, I think. Okay. <laughs> Considering this year uh, is, uh, in some ways, a year of big books with things like your collection and uh, Anders Nilsson's yes. uh, big questions. Which, uh, while I, I heard that you guys were comparing sizes, because his is thicker, but <laughs> less pages. <laughs> <laughs> but according to uh, Todd Solon's film Happiness, thicker is more intense. <laughs> but no, actually, Under's book is the book that's the highest on my wish list. Um, I didn't buy it in San Diego because I was one of those lame people. I was like, ah, oh, I have to travel and I don't have any room in my luggage. I'll get it as soon as I get home. And I rushed to a comic store. I'm like, yeah, big questions I want. And they're like, oh, it's not out for another month or two. And I was like, oh, what did I do? Uh, I missed my window. But yeah, so that's the book I'm, I personally am most excited for. It's it's a pretty book. Um, back to you. Let's let's yes. shine the 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 light back on yourself. So, um, goodbye, chunky rice. Kind of does the the theme of it does into like one curious about where you went with your comics because it seems like the book is about leaving a small town kind of leaving your past behind to make a new future and does that kind of compare with your experience from moving from the Midwest to Portland? Not entirely because There was no boat? Well when I left the Midwest I was leaving Milwaukee, Wisconsin uh, where I'd lived like a year or a year and a half and made like a really tight circle of friends and moved to Portland, which to me felt like a kind of small, frumpy, sleazy town when I arrived. So I didn't arrive fully in love with Portland. Probably the first two years were a struggle for me. Um, and partly that was based on where I was living and the, the job I was able to get. But I was not happy in Portland. And, and some people are surprised when you're like, I moved from the Midwest and then I, I feel like I downgraded to a smaller town. 
Well, Portland's and, uh, so huge. Like, you could have been stuck in the southeast and have no idea. I was, yeah, I was stuck on Powell Boulevard, which is a sort of one of yeah every every city has those sort of trashy sort of like thoroughfare streets um and uh i lived in a house with hippies there was the constant like drum circles that went through the night and it was like a huge mess uh i worked at fred meyer which you might be familiar with the grocery store oh, okay uh, I, I was stocking the uh, the uh hardware department and uh <laughs> I was mugged a number of times, including, uh, this might interest you, I was mugged at a bus stop with this developmentally disabled man. That was pretty bad. Um, and I had, like, bikes stolen. I tried to open a bank account, and before I ever got my checkbooks in the mail, uh, like, they were stolen, and I had, like, $6,000 in bounced checks. Um, Oy. Like, everything in Portland just seemed to be going wrong for me. And so, and I was also starving. I remember uh, <laughs> I would go to Taco Bell and wait for people to abandon food on their plates, like unwrapped food. And then that's what I would eat. Uh, plus there's a lot of like uh, urban sort of uh, fruit trees and, uh, and you, you can kind of fill up on plums and apples and blackberries just out of people's yards. But so it was, it was a rough time. And I was, during that time I was also longing for my friends back in Milwaukee. And, yeah. Uh, and that was the fuel behind uh, Chunky Rice. That longing. Was, um, did you start on Chunky Rice while you were going through that experience, or was it something you got started on after you had gotten regular so, work? Yeah, so when I left Milwaukee, um, like, my, um, I was, I had a weird job there. I was a uh, laser light show animator. So I worked at a children's museum where there was a uh, um, a, a giant um, stage where they would do like shows with like Tesla coils and whatnot, small nice. explosions, and they had a laser light show set up, very similar to like watching the Pink Floyd, The Wall sort of thing. Only it worked on a, like a 24 frame animation style, so anything that you would draw on the Wacom tablet into the computer, you could animate at 24 frames per second. And uh, uh, they, I would do one a week, one five-minute or, like, let's say, three to five-minute animation. They'd give me a song, uh, say, like, it was uh, I'm the Walrus by the Beatles, and they'd want, by the end of the week, an animation, a narrative based on that song or animated with the song, synchronized. It was a weird job, but that job had just wrapped up and had ended. The project had ended. My uh, lease on my apartment had ended, and uh, I was experiencing a pretty major heartbreak all at the same time. So that's when I decided sort of impulsively to leave Milwaukee and move to Portland. But I had like a three-month span where I moved back to live with my parents in rural Wisconsin. And uh, that was because I need, mostly because I needed to save some money and find a place to live in Portland. Mm-hmm. And while I was there is probably when I was I was maybe even more miserable there than I was in Portland. No, maybe not because it was really beautiful in Wisconsin, like nature-wise. Yeah. But while I was at my parents' house experiencing that, you know, that horrible, familiar, like quality of being back living at your parents' house at age 21, that's when I started making these uh, strips about my friends in Milwaukee. And none of those made it into Goodbye Chunky Rice, the book. But they were part of Goodbye Chunky Rice, the mini comic. Oh, okay. Which I was working on when I moved to Portland, 
and I met Brett Warnock, who was a bartender at an Italian restaurant. <laughs> and uh, Brett, Brett was uh, he had a company called Primal Groove Press, and under that imprint, he was doing a uh, self-published anthology called Top Shelf. But Brett saw these pages I was working on in my at, at my house in Portland of Goodbye Chunky Rice, and he said, "Like I don't like these uh, personal stories you're doing about your friends, or I like them, but they're too personal for publication." But this this little turtle guy, who was uh, I'm jumping ahead of myself, but uh, the theme of my mini comic was going to be the story of this little turtle leaving his home. Uh, just as it, it interspersed with actually memoir-based stories of my friends, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, and he really was attached to the turtle guy, Chunky Rice. He's like, if you did a whole book of this guy, I would publish it. And so that that's partly what motivated me to like uh, just put some of the more personal stuff aside and focus on seeing Chunky Rice's story uh, to conclusion. Um, Does that make sense? It makes yeah, no, it makes complete sense. Mm -hmm. And for folks that are curious, you could also get Brett's own mini comics off the top shelf website. Can you? So they still have those. available? They still have one available. Yeah. Wow, that's awesome. Just just putting that out there because I know. Yeah, that was a d different era. It was a more innocent era because uh, <laughs> you know Brett was a, was a bartender at that time. Uh, he uh, and he was he was one of the people that had contacted me via Spit and a Half. Oh, okay. And uh, and so I had a few um, Portland connections, uh, you know, via like pen pals. Before you and moved so there. So I got to town. There was a few people that I tracked down, and I think, yeah, it, it. You know, Brett is one of those people that said when when I tried to contact him initially, he's just like, oh, he's just another pesky sort of fanboy, wanting to get published. And then he kind of then it took him a while to remember who I was and like, oh yeah, I I, I got in contact with this guy. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh dearie! So he blew me off initially, but thankfully uh, I was I pestered him and called again, and he's like, "Oh, I'm glad you called back." Persistence pays off. Yep. And that's is that around the time when you got involved in doing design work for books, or is that a little later? Uh, no, I, I worked. So I can rewind a bit. I went to community college for a year in oh, okay. small town Wisconsin. This is uh, so I was still living with my parents after high school, um, and went to community college for a year, and I worked a job as a delivery van driver for a newspaper. So all the missed deliveries, I was on dispatch in the Ford Econoline line to go deliver. Um, and I used to decorate our sort of dispatch board with all these cartoons. And so someone suggested to me like, "Oh, there's an opening in graphic design. You should apply over there." And I. I did, and I got the job. And it was a very low-level graphic design. It's called an ad stylist. So you're the person that does all like those horrible like uh, classifieds and grocery store ads. And uh, the fancier ads would be like the uh, the sort of car and truck ads in the newspaper. <laughs> so that's what I did. I did that for over a year, and uh, and then after that, I worked at a small town advertising agency. And then the first decent job, or the first, actually the last real job I had was working as a graphic designer at Dark Horse Comics. So when I moved to Portland, I worked as a house painter, and then I worked at Fred Meyer as the uh, hardware department stock boy, and then I worked at a um, independent music label as like a, also a stockroom boy packaging CDs. 
And finally, I landed a real job at Dark Horse as a graphic designer. So I had all of that experience before I did graphic design for Top Shelf. Okay. And that was my last real job, working at uh, Dark Horse. And uh, I felt really fortunate because they sort of like pegged me early on as the designer for all the sort of quirky, funny, indie-style books. So I was super happy to work with uh, Jay Stevens, actually, on The Land of Nod with um, Dark Horse and then with Mike Allred and um, and the Scatterbrain is very connections cool. with, yeah, with Dave Cooper so that was the stuff that made the job worth it and then there were other projects which I won't name that I hated there and I hated doing like toy packaging uh, you know I, I remember working on a book which was Aliens versus the Vikings <laughs> oh my god and uh you know, and it, and it was my best job and my worst job ever. Like, yeah. I was so happy to be that close to the comics medium and yet kept from doing what I really wanted to do in comics, which was writing and drawing stories. Instead, I was designing logos and, you know, uh, lunch box, uh, lunch boxes and stuff like that, you know, and I, I wanted to be working on comics. Yeah, lunch boxes aren't comics. Let's just nope. be very clear that I'm not a fan of uh, mass merchandise. I just... I don't no, it. me neither. I don't like tchotchkes and trinkets and the dust only, collectors. The only toys I have are the Dave Cooper toys and some of the Dan Klaus toys. I think okay. That's it. <laughs> no more stuff than that. Um, it's funny, reading Goodbye Chunky Rice, one of the things that really stood out to me, and I'm just, I'm just gonna, let's just dive right into comics now, um, was the uh, influence of French work I was feeling through. It's like a lot of l'association type of things. Was that something you'd been reading at that point? Because I know later you, you get into, especially in the carnet of who you're hanging out with um, and some of those folks, but in um, Goodbye Check Your Rice, I see that kind of, that thick blackness that you don't see in a lot of North American mini-comics. So you, already in Chunky Rice, you recognize that influence? Yeah. Well, that's very astute of you. Um, Actually, another benefit of going to community college is I got to go um, on a little art scholarship trip with three other students to Paris. And at that point, I, I was like the most closed-minded, uh, sheltered little uh, Midwestern boy that you can imagine going to a big city for the first time. Golly, big city! And that big city was Paris. Um, and uh, so that was completely mind-blowing, and that overlapped exactly with my interest in comics. So I found myself in those Bon Désigné shops and being overwhelmed. Some of them were like three or five stories, you know, high, um, and, and, uh, but also a little disappointed because um, I definitely had an indie comics attitude, and I was seeing all these sort of science fiction and erotic and fantasy books, and I'm like, ah, none of that. That's just as bad as superheroes. But I uh, stumbled upon a collection of mini-comics from um, Cornelius. And in those mini-comics were uh, Louis Trondheim and David Bay. Um, and so this is pre-L'Association. This oh, okay. is like, And so I bought up all these, especially, I'll, I'll say David B. because it sounds a little pretentious in the States to say David Bay. But I bought up all these David B. books. Um, and just would pour over them. I couldn't read the French at all, but he was like very early on uh, the first French cartoonist I was obsessed with. And I think that influence can be seen 
in chunky rice. I can really feel the David B when you're doing the kind of more tor when you see yourself being tormented or going through your own kind of anxieties. I really I can feel that like that same sense that he has when he's working through issues. Okay, that's good. Yeah, he's he's uh, he's an amazing guy, um, but he's he's got a very dry humor and he's very serious. Um, I mean, he's funny, but he's very serious when you're around him too. It's hard. It's it's hard to sum up his his personality. It's charming and yet a little bit scary. How well could you read the words? In a very complimentary way. <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll take it as complimentary. Um, how well could you actually read that work? Poorly, poorly, especially then. Um, yeah, I had no French skills then. And so I was uh, like 18 or 19 years old when I went on that trip. And then I experienced this severe culture shock when I came back to small town America. Because it was like I was looking at my world with new eyes for the first time. And I could see it in all its grotesquerie. Because um, suddenly my worldview had expanded. I, I didn't even know that people really traveled to other countries. Like, I literally grew up in this sort of sheltered bubble where I didn't know uh, Americans could speak other languages. The only people I knew who traveled to exotic locations were missionaries. And that Which, sounds like an exagger exaggeration, but it isn't. I, I, you know, I, I didn't know people who went to college growing up. So, yeah. um, I, I, was, I was as, you know, backwoods, a sort of country boy as you can conceive of. Was this around the time when your kind of, uh, for lack of a return, like lapse in faith happened? Yeah, that was also going on too. I mean, in my later high school years, I definitely identified as Christian and was really a, a sort of obsessed with the teachings of Jesus. But I, I was, fall, I, you know, I was falling out of love with the organ, definitely the organized faith and the sort of the dogma and structure of a church and the hypocrisy. And I was, at that time, I was kind of like little punk rock kid, identified as a feminist and a vegetarian, you know. Like so, <laughs> I was like one of those, uh, you know, how do how do you, how do you describe them? Those sort of like idealistic, skateboarder Christian uh, <laughs> vegan. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I was re I was really into Jesus, but I thought that Jesus was, and I still believe this, that he was like a social revolutionary. It was like down with the man, like he wouldn't support America or the you know organized religion, mm -hmm. whatnot. I, I I think that that that's a conversation that can go on for quite some time of the difference between belief structures and beliefs, and it's a it's a bit of a mess. Yeah, as I'm sure you're very aware of.
And we're back. Uh, I'm talking with Craig Thompson. His books are Carnet de Voyage, Blankets, Goodbye Chunky Rice, and the most recent Habibi. We're just uh, talking a bit about uh, Goodbye Chunky Rice, and one of the things I was curious about is the use of um, classical literature in it. There's a, specifically speaking, there's a reference to Orpheus, and in some of your other work, um, use other forms of literature to kind of pull in and tie into the work as kind of, I guess, adding to the narrative. Yeah, and, and the thing is, I just think that the comics medium is, is particularly suited to the, the visual mashup. Um, since it's like uh, about the art of sequence, it's not just um, about um, juxtaposing one image with an, another, but it's very uh, easy to like juxtapose one story with another. Um, and so that's just a sort of a tendency I've had in, in all my books is to weave in separate stories. And, and I think it works more gracefully in comics than maybe most other forms. Like you don't have the same visual cues in prose. And in cinema, you don't have the same time cues. Like, you know, you're going well, you to be held to the next scene whether you want to or not. But with comics, you can j jump back and forth on the page with your eyes and yeah, it's that control you have. I think um, Gary Panter's Jimbo and Purgatory is a good example of that, just how far you can take that control. Um, I don't know. Exactly. It could be beyond a readable way or not, depending on how f how much effort you want to put into the work. Um, well, yeah, and, and with like Gary Panter's work, or, or um, I've been really um, excited about all this um, sort of alternative manga that D&Q has been putting out. Yeah. That's like Gaika or whatever. Oh, yeah, yeah. I have I no idea. I I'll, I'll butcher it. But, uh, you know, and, and there's a sort of abstract quality to a lot of those narratives, but there's also, like, the, the whole intent of sort of wandering or getting lost in a panel. I think Scott McCloud talks about that in manga. And I love those moments in comics mm -hmm. when you're just allowed either visually or sort of narratively to just sort of wander off for a moment. It, yeah, and it's funny because... Yeah, it's this formalist way of just like realizing you're in this bigger, bigger space within the comic. You're not tied to saying a point A to point B, which for yourself you could fall back easily into doing that. Just doing here, here's a story, point A to point B. But I think these little side steps kind of add to the enjoyment of reading something like that. Yeah, plot doesn't interest me that much. When I'm reading a book and suddenly I feel sucked into a plot. Of, of a like point A to point B to point C, I, I get bored. I get yeah. that sort of existential boredom. I, I want to have more of a sense of <laughs> no plot <laughs> and, uh, you know, and of, of, of just the, the, the sort of pleasure, sensuality of the reading experience. That's something... I, mean, that, I think that's an important thing about that separates literature in some ways from, uh, you know, a more sort of pop form of writing which is about plot. Yeah. Yeah. And it, something that, that sticks out to me is sometimes work should be difficult to read. Um, I'm not saying that your work is difficult to read because it's, it's the opposite. It's quite easy to read. But work sometimes should be difficult to read. So you have to invest more into it. You have to take that time to it. Exactly. And in comics, uh, can you still hear me? Yeah. Exactly, and uh, comics are are ideal again for that because um, I'm I, 
you know, I haven't went back and revisited many novels. There's only a couple novels in my lifetime that I've read more than once. But comics, you know, you want to go back. Like, there's always that initial read that's a little bit breezy and more about just taking it all in pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And then you want to go back and savor. And hopefully it's, you know, new details will keep emerging each reading. You expect that of any literature, hopefully. <laughs> yeah. Re-read. Yeah, but I think... I think comics are one of those things, like, I, I'm more prone to buy comics or graphic novels than prose books because of my reading habits. Like, uh, I, I don't tend to reread prose books. Yeah. Maybe if they're nonfiction, I'll, I'll uh, reference them for research over and over. But, uh, but graphic novels, you know, there is a pleasure about going back and savoring them on different levels. As a thousand gargoyles 
Goodbye, Chunky Rice. You kind of—it's uh, a story of the ocean, in part. You being such a big nature guy, what was it like when you first came to the West Coast? Yeah, I'm a—I'm totally a nature guy, and the great irony of uh, Chunky Rice is I had—I had never been to the ocean before finishing that book. <laughs> um, and in fact, the ocean in Chunky Rice is probably has more to do with um, Lake Michigan. Mm-hmm. And in, in Milwaukee, I would, lived only a few blocks from Lake Michigan. And so every single day I spent with that body of water. And it's a massive body of water. It feels like being on a small ocean. Um, you know, it, it, there's even people that go surfing on Lake Michigan, apparently. Oh, yeah. In the Green Bay area. Um, so, yeah, and, and when I moved to Portland, again, I was very poor and I had no transportation. There was, we're still like an hour or an hour and a half from the coast out here. So uh, it wasn't until long after Chunky Rice that was finished that I, I bought like a bus ticket to go out to the Oregon coast, and of course was totally obsessed with it. Like as soon as I saw it, I stripped to my underwear and jumped in, and it was frigid northwest <laughs> water. But, um, but that's not what is drawn in Chunky Rice. Yeah, it's it's like Michigan. But it's true that I'm a definitely a nature boy, and and being in the northwest is a good. Place to be for that purpose. So, like every day, or not every day, but every weekend, you can get out to the mountains or the ocean or the river. Mm -hmm. It's very much like that up here in Vancouver. I'm not one yes. to take advantage of it, but it is. I love uh, Vancouver. 
It's, Sorry uh, to interrupt there. No, go ahead. It's always nice to hear people have been here. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I love that city. I, w I would definitely live there. It's expensive, though. That's what and I hear. It is expensive. Um, so when you, your next book, Blankets, when you started that, did you have any idea what you were getting into with it as far as size, depth? Or... Uh, yeah, I had the size agenda from the start. Um, and that was definitely influenced by European comics and by L'Association. Um, mm -hmm. That was like so that a gigantic 2,000 page anthology, wordless anthology. Extra 2,000? Uh, so, yes, that they put out on January 2000 uh, was partly my introduction to a lot of European cartoonists. Um, but it's like they were starting to put out some pretty sizable volumes and I uh, aesthetically they really appealed to me and there was Louis Trondheim's book uh, is it La Pignon in uh, The Carrots of Pentigone it's a 500 page book and uh, Louis had challenged himself before that he wasn't much of a drawer he, oh this is his like his first book basically his first book yeah he had done basically mini comics before then and he wasn't that good of a drawer, so he challenged himself to do 500 pages with the uh, intent that by the end of drawing them, he will hopefully have you know gathered some skills. And in fact, he did. I mean, it made it. You could see a giant leap in his drawing skills over the course of those 500 pages. So I wanted to take on the same challenge to do a 500-page book as quickly as I could in the hopes that I would learn more as a storyteller through the process. Also, you know, I had an agenda to do a big book where very little happened. It's <laughs> a sort of reaction against the way comics were put together that were very fast-paced and action-packed and explosive and fueled by sort of adolescent fantasies. I wanted to do instead a book that was long and breathable, but very little happened. That was the stuff that appealed to me in narrative at that yeah. time. Well, it's kind of uh, another take on, like, the mainstream comics, they have this thing they call, like, uh, decompressed storytelling. And this is, like, decompressed, decompressed storytelling, then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I guess it's sort of manga-influenced on some level, too, because manga, you, they tend to take their time with a lot of details like that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you can definitely tell if you read any um, Tezuka book where he'll go into, yeah, these huge things that can cover a simple story, but it's also a lot of ideas that he pumps through in that book. Mm -hmm. So you, I guess to clarify, you you mentioned you had done autobio before, so this book wasn't new doing autobio for you. No, it wasn't. I mean, I'd done these little shorts that nobody's seen except for my friends that I drew them for. Um, and But the, the autobio element in blankets sort of emerged in spite of myself. I did have this desire to do a very, uh, pers like a personal story, but not memoir. I, I wanted to capture the experience of sharing a bed with someone for the first time. And it was only as I meditated on my own experiences, both my relationship with my brother growing up and then this high school romance, that I just saw that there was a book there. Mm -hmm. But I was really resistant initially to do it memoir based and when I was first uh, like my first draft I was trying to change as many details as possible to make it not look like my family 
And then the more I worked, the more it just sort of emerged that it was basically Autobile. You changed your brother's name, though, right? I changed my brother's name. I changed everyone's name. Okay. Um, but, you know, and there's still some details that I changed uh, from reality. Um, like, for instance, I have a sister. So my brother's the youngest, and my sister's in the middle. Um, but in my earliest drafts, it wasn't supposed to be my family. As it become, became more and more like my real-life family, my sister would have sort of been relegated to be a background character, and I, I just I wasn't comfortable with that. Like, she had very little role in the narrative, so I thought it was just more tasteful to not have her there at all. And I, I, I talked with her about this, and she was relieved. She's like, okay, I have no problem <laughs> not being in this book. Sounds good to me. That's funny, yeah, because that would totally change it. Um, yeah. Because you really, with that book, you hi there's this like really big sense of duality in there and of how you and your brother work off each other and the experiences and also, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for me, Autobio is definitely a sort of, is about like elimination. It's about like edit, editing away all the unnecessary details. That, that becomes the fiction of Autobio, is that you have to chisel away to the core of the story so, you know, a lot of details that might be interesting are lost. For instance, um, you know, I have a sister. Also, I was pulled out of school halfway through my senior year to be homeschooled. And there's an entire book of its own in those details, the homeschooled experience. Um, and then but next to our barn in the backyard, uh, my brother and I had a giant skate ramp. But I was like, oh, you know, like, that's just, that itself is a story in its own. You know, like, what's this, like in the middle of the country with like barns and silos in the background what's this big half pipe doing so you know i just ended up eliminating a lot of details to get to the focus of the narrative yeah well that's i'm interested in the skateboard <laughs> it's not really that in interesting i mean i'm sure there's a lot of listeners or a lot of kids out there who are like small town country boys who built their own half pipes in the backyard um, and they're really funny in that context because, like in Wisconsin, it's all this like miles and miles of fields. So you can kind of hear those skate ramps resonating for <laughs> for miles and miles. It's just for uh, me, like where I come from, you know, skateboarding is definitely like counterculture. And uh, and I look at how presuming how you'd grown up in this very religious household, and something like skateboarding would seem, you know, counterculture, but. Well, my parents, my parents were really supportive of uh, sort of uh, self-expression. I mean, they're not in a religious sense. I mean, they they they're not supportive of like edgy arts or anything. But mm -hmm. they had no problem with growing our hair long and skateboarding and uh, loud music as long as it was Christian loud music. And uh, you know, friends with piercings and stuff like that. They always thought that stuff was cute. Like, oh. Your nose piercing, that's so cute, you know. My parents are pretty open-minded about those things. They're, they're not, like, to their credit, they're not at all, um, conf they're not con societal conformists. They're sort of from the Jesus Freak movement in the early 70s of, like, sort of hippie Christians. Okay. And so even now they don't identify, I mean, they, they've become a little bit more, they are conservative in their sort of spiritual beliefs, but not in their societal beliefs. They're not middle class or upper class Christians they're, they're not class. mega church 
none of that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, the church when I was a kid, initially the church was just in people's living rooms. Mm-hmm. And the pastor had long hair and a beard and he'd strum on his acoustic guitar and we'd hold hands. You know, it was, it was part of that Jesus Freak movement. Uh, you know, the sort of Jimmy Carter era of born-again hippies. And my parents were really big into the back-to-earth movement. So uh, they, they left their hometown uh, in Michigan to look for, like, a smaller town where they could really escape and, like, grow and raise all their own food. So, you know, we had, we raised chickens and ducks and rabbits for meat. Uh, we had like a half acre garden which was tons of vegetables and food and then anything else we just bartered with other farmers to trade for milk or or like beef so it was a very self-sufficient little hobby farm it was like you know it was pretty hippie-ish in its own right even though it was also very religious and strict it it kind of it makes things make sense to me hearing that though because I was wondering like a lot of ways to hear folks go through that like, I, I, my presumption was like a lot more like, um, stricter evangelical, um, you know. So it my shifted. own, my own presumptions as a my, Canadian. <laughs> my parents' church shifted a lot. Like it started from these very humble, sort of sweet roots, of um, if, like I said, like just yeah, meeting yeah. in people's living rooms, and then at certain times, at one point, we rented a space that was like a storefront. Um, where it was just like cushions on the floor or pillows on the floor and everybody hung out with their acoustic guitars and sang Jesus songs. Um, and then we rented different spaces. We were like in this old old antique sort of city hall in town for a while. But by the time I got to high school, they actually got the money together to buy a building or actually have it built, a, a proper church. Yeah. And from there, the politics of the community completely changed. Yeah. Because then they had a, they had bills to pay. They had a, a more people coming into the church with more conservative views. They eventually outed the sort of hippie pastor and got a more like traditional hellfire and brimstone pastor in place. And that sort of coincided with my own falling out with the, you know, with the faith. Like, I, you know, it started to become more about, you know, collection offerings and politics and revelations sort of hellfire sermons and um and the the innocence was lost and, and that became more like it became more like what you imagine when you think of sort of conservative evangelical christianity in america and that was something i was curious was how you resolve with yourself this kind of lapse of faith or how faith had like taken over your life um through your works because i mean it's still the the ideas are very present this the traditions are present like the narrative traditions especially um which you really dive into with habibi um and somewhat in blankets so yeah i was it's interesting uh so um could you repeat the question i'm sorry i don't think there was a question okay (laughs) it was just more a statement on how i was curious about how you resolved that faith and that that loss of faith, but it, it kind of makes sense to me the way it was. Yeah, and I don't know if it's ever fully resolved. It's something like like I'll probably be examining in certain ways my whole life. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm certainly um, interested in spiritual concerns. I saw an interview with Harry Dean Stanton, who's one of my favorite actors, 
where he said that like everybody is spiritual whether they acknowledge it or not like it's it's just like part of our makeup it's not something you know and that's something I kind of agree with like I'm a, I'm spiritual to the extent that everybody is um and uh yeah you know and also I mean as far as like I, I definitely like um I, I went through a long phase. There's probably a decade of my life where I was reading the Bible every day, too. So it's really shaped my sense of storytelling. In Blankets, one of the things, one of the stories that you touch on is uh, from Luke, um, where the woman who wouldn't stop, couldn't stop bleeding... Um, and I remembered, I was like, this story's really familiar. And then I remember that Chester Brown had done a version of it in his Gospels. Oh, yeah. And I'm wondering if you had read that at all before you'd done yours. And I wonder if that was something like that, how you took his his version of the Gospels, how that affected at all. Chester Brown is definitely a big influence on me. Um, I don't know if I had seen his actual version of that, um, but I'm sure that I was subconsciously ripping him off with my version, my sort of my drawings of Jesus. Like his version is like that sort of towering, severe looking, threatening Jesus. Yeah. Um, and in a way too, I was trying to draw uh, a, a sort of swarthy sort of Jesus, you know? Because that's, that's how I saw him. Again, I saw him as like this sort of social revolutionary, this sort of guy who would... Uh, upturn all the tables of the money changers at the temple like uh, not the sort of demure blue-eyed gentle jesus but a, a, more of a a thug gangster <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know. jesus yeah um yeah it is all right um but uh jehovah <laughs> but uh, uh was I, uh, but yeah, so like I hadn't seen all of Chester's work. I still don't think I've seen his his rendition of that Luke story. Um, but he is a he. I love those gospels that he adapted. That's that's another one of my big wish list books. And uh, as far as the gospels go, Luke is has always been my favorite. It's like the most. Uh, they say that Luke is the most um, sympathetic towards women and children of all the all the writers of the Gospels. Mm -hmm. and, there, and there's nothing in there, in, in that book, that refers to Jesus as the Son of God. You know, there's no claim to his di divinity in there. Um, he seems more like just like this sort of altruistic, like, do-gooder, but not someone running around proclaiming that he's God in, in man form. I think also uh, Nick Cave was a big influence on him. Luke is. Luke is, yeah. Yeah, I seem to remember reading that somewhere. Um, with blankets, um, how do you feel about it as cathartic work? Uh, I have mixed feelings. I mean, yeah, I, I have a really difficult time trying, uh, like, separating my my life from my work. So whatever I'm processing in real life is coming out in my work. Mm -hmm. And I can't really untangle the two. So, uh, you know, Blankets was like a vehicle for me to come out to my parents with my spiritual, you know, beliefs. And so it, it definitely stirred up a lot of 
uncomfortable conversations. But, you know, coming from like a sort of Midwestern sort of background where there isn't a lot of dialogue, there isn't a lot of uh, intimate conversation, like I needed something to sort of, like a vehicle, like I said, to like help me along the way, help get that out. So I was sort of coming out in the same way that, you know, someone who is homosexual might. Mm-hmm. Like it was a very clumsy, awkward, necessary process in like sort of talking about who I really was with my parents. I feel like the work itself and some of those ideas really build up what you're doing later with Habibi. And yeah, do, that's... You, do you see that connection there? Um, yeah, no, I think that's definitely fair to say. I don't, I don't know if it's conscious. Um, yeah, none of these things are conscious. Um, <laughs> and that's, that's, I think that's part of the point. Like, uh, it's a good, I don't know. Uh, yeah, uh, art is just a great um, venue for processing things that are in the subconscious. But to some degree, it helps also to keep them buried a little bit. Because uh, once you, I don't know, I'm babbling right now. I'm not making sense. No, you are making complete sense. Yeah, I don't know if that's entirely true though. I I, I had a a talk with a cartoonist friend who thought that maybe the interview process was unhealthy for a cartoonist because it forces you to take things out of your subconscious and examine them, but you kind of need to keep them there as a sort of slow burning fuel for your artwork. Mm-hmm. And to some degree, I believe with I, I I agree with that. Like I was doing therapy for a solid four years, and it was a it was a healing process. But to some degree, I was really worried that by dealing with things in a sort of psychotherapy context, I would be stealing from my motivation as an artist. If I healed up those wounds too much, I might not have the same motivation artistically. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, it's, I mean, that kind of goes into a weird area of uh, what, what does art perform as a purpose, as a sense of release, as a sense of self-expression. Um, it's kind of certainly, weird... certainly, it's self-exploration. Yeah. So, uh, you know, and I don't know if it's true, if it, you know, if it. It's not really designed to fix everything, you know. It's supposed to create questions rather than answers. Do you th- I, I, I can't help but think of like uh, an example, of like or not even an example, but a situation like with Art Spiegelman, where I mean, his work was working through all these issues, and that sense of when he was done, Mouse, how he went through that really crippling depression, and how that yeah. kind of affected him. As a creator, I don't know. Is that something you'd thought about or it's spoken with about Spiegelman? With, I haven't spoken with him, with him about that. That would be amazing. Uh, I have had the honor of of spending time with him and Francoise in Angoulême. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I, I you know I know in most too he talks a lot about the fact too that there was that you know there's survivor's guilt. There's the fact that in a in a sense he was exploiting this trauma that his parents went through for his own fame. I mean, and that's not the case in reality, but it makes sense that he would feel that way. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I, I too went through 
I guess I went through a similar thing where I felt like I was, ex, ex, you know, like I had I, I I had the freedom to tell my own story, but since my own story involved other people in my real life, you know, there was a certain guilt about having, you know, exploited that in some sense. You know, I I know my dad sort of communicated that, like, what what right do you have to take our our private lives and make it public? And uh, the only answer I had for him is that, you know, it's not about, it's not really about my experience. About it's it's more it should be about a sort of universal experience. Like in in like telling these sort of intimacies, uh, you like kind of give everybody a venue or permission to tell their own stories, and through telling those stories, there's healing. Yeah. So, yeah. so I guess now I'm getting coming around full circle that yeah, there is a form of healing in, in art making. And that said, I also don't think that art making is redemptive necessarily. Like, you know, look at all the artists who have, like, you know, committed suicide or whatnot. Like, I, um, you know, I don't think you can depend on art to save your soul. <laughs> like, just, you know, yeah. And you know, as healing as art might be, there's also a lot of destruct, you know, destructive uh, energies that come out of like. Pouring all your time and you know energy into it. Well, it's probably, also... probably spending a day at the beach is more healing for your soul than making a book. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's also how people, I guess, like you kind of have to shut yourself off in a certain way to not engage too much. How people react with your work as well. Yeah, and uh, it's it's funny now because like um. But like when Blankets initially came out, there was there was a lot of negative uh, uh, kickback against it. Mm -hmm. And I'll, I'll include myself. Like I had some personal misgivings on the first read of of it. Felt kind of um, self indulgent in a way. Oh yeah, that's that's fair to say. Like yeah. all uh, all definitely all art is self indulgent. Um, Autobio even more so. <laughs> um, so but yeah, I, I would say that's a fair criticism. But it's also one of those things where I read again in kind of a different lens and kind of got something else out of it too. So. Oh, good. <laughs> I say that, but there's also you know yeah there's also a vulnerability in both those things in both art and and autobio. So. Yeah. Yes. Yes, it's self-indulgent, but you know, hopefully, um, like for some readers, there's like something to be gained by reading other people's sort of awkward intimacies. I know I have that experience as a reader. Um, you know that that there's there's you know, that sort of not alone in the world sort of experience you can have. Yeah, and that that is a, a big valid point within creating works, especially like I asked Chester Brown about that because his work is very uh self-revelatory um and he, he's just straight up it's he's gone through this and he's sharing it so someone else has gone through it will be able to touch on that and i think it's the same when you look at like uh chris ware's really like his uh sketchbooks and his very personal open work like that um yeah well those things i mean he claims those will never be published right except after his death <laughs> Oh, the newer sketchbooks. I was talking about the uh, the two that have been published oh, by Drawing okay. Quarterly. Okay, I thought we were talking about those autobio uh, journal comics he does every day. Yeah, no, uh, that's something else entirely. 
Yeah. <laughs> I think that's something he's leaving to his daughter to decide what to do with. All right. So. Oh, that would be a horrible thing for a child to read. Yeah. The <laughs> <laughs> diary of their parents. Oh. Oh. Uh, it's actually, it's funny. I know uh, I know other folks that do something similar. Like Colin Upton, he does a daily comic for he himself does, huh? that he doesn't show anyone. Like he has all these little sketchbooks of his daily stuff. So he says it's a way of like keeping track of his life because he has really bad memory. So. Yeah, I can relate to that. <laughs> um, do you still do sketchbooking as much, or it's like... it's an off and on sort of process. Um, when I was writing Habibi, when I was caught up in the writing process, which lasted two years, I was really good at keeping a sketchbook because I needed to stay limber, sort of visually. Yeah. And uh, you know, so I was doing figure drawing, and I was just just random doodles and brainstorming. And then, unfortunately, in the last you know several months, my life has been so business based and publicity based and practical. Like I don't even feel like an artist right now. Because everything is about self-promotion and getting like all my ducks in a row before a tour. Yeah. So it's just it, I go through phases, and you know, like um, there'll be a sort of wonderful sort of brainstorming phase that I'll be in when I get back from tour, because I want to get started on new projects, and so that's like when I'm most like deep in my sketchbooks and and you know playing in them and and exploring. But no, I'm not a good regular discipline of the sketchbooks sort of person. I almost feel reading uh, the Carnet de Voyage um, that the sketchbooks work better for you when it is such, like, it's more of a personal thing and less of a something to have an expectation from. Should I talk a little bit about that project? And yeah. How, how that actually came into being? Um, there's some personal details I won't get into, but uh, um, I was... Uh, I was initially anyway things were falling apart for me in Portland in early 2004 like just in terms of my personal life I was going through like like it was post a bad breakup and uh, I was just in a bad situation so um, I decided to get away for um, a trip to Europe and I had a lot of friends there and I was gonna do some traveling but when my uh, foreign publishers found out about my trip they sort of co-opted it and like filled it up with all these tour dates so suddenly my little getaway and escape to Europe was a big book tour um, and uh, and that's when I mapped out this trip to Morocco like I carved out three weeks for myself that way I would just be alone and and not doing book signings and just sort of experiencing things um, and the trip grew and grew. I think it was going to be a couple weeks at first, and suddenly it was like three and a half months that were all mapped out. And I got a lot of anxiety because I know that I'm obsessed with productivity. And I was like, I don't think I can indulge in this kind of trip without doing something like productive. That's just not the way my brain works. I have to be working. So that's when I thought of this idea of keeping a daily, um, a daily comics journal or comics diary mm -hmm. um, and uh, I think very shortly before leaving for before the trip I talked to uh, Top Shelf and said hey I'm, I'm planning to do this this comics diary is this maybe you know something we could publish down the road if it turns out and they're like better yet let's publish it now 
<laughs> so they they said, you know, you while you're in France, you can do all the production work, and you, we can get it off the press, right. and it'll be back from the printer before you get back from Europe. And in the meantime, we'll need cover and promotional copy from you to get to Diamond right now. So I had to do all this sort of like like I had to design a cover for the book before it existed in any form. So suddenly, like <laughs> I'm leaving for this trip, and I'm like, whoa, wait! I just like invited this like homework storm upon myself. Like now I'm obligated to keep this diary, and it actually has to be interesting in the end. And I had huge anxiety when I uh, when I made it to a. Uh, sort of my deadline, which was near the end of my stay in Barcelona, that's like, okay, this has to get off the press really soon. And uh, uh, I went back to Lyon where my friend uh, Frederic was and he helped me with the scanning of the book and the cleanup and he was the proofreader. But I sat there and I read through my sketchbooks. I'm like, this isn't publishable. This is horrible. Like, <laughs> and uh, against better judgment, I let it go to press anyway. And, and ironically, I mean, it's one of the books that later on I was, I was, it was, almost the most personally satis satisfied with because it was so raw and immediate like there's nothing really censored it, it literally is just my my diary every day there's no reflection or editing that happens afterwards it's it's just raw and that was something I was wondering about reading that and then you're hanging out with Blutch and some of the European guys and I was wondering if looking at their work if you wanted to try doing um, some similar type of storytelling where you are more freer within the story without putting yourself in these constraints of these voluminous epics um, or someone like Blitz, you'll have these short stories, these stories of images that would just work together. Yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to, uh, I'd love to get more casual with what I do and hopefully I, hopefully I can with these upcoming projects. And when I was visiting France too, that was like at the height of all the, uh, the sort of uh, indie comics creators in France um, being um, being very staunch about like the sort of no penciling, straight to paper aesthetic. Um, um, they were yeah they were throwing out like people like Jones Farr and Louis Trondheim were throwing out the pen pencil composition stage altogether, just like dip your brush or, or nib pen and go straight to paper with the ink. And so I was experimenting with that with Carnet, but haven't I haven't applied it to actual graphic novel projects yet. But it's something possibly of interest. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I, certainly, <laughs> want, I certainly want to work faster. Yeah. I don't know. On the flip side, I mean, that's a very French sort of uh, style. And I think... Uh, the North American style is a little bit more uptight and a little more controlled. It must be part of our puritanical roots. <laughs> more, uh, yeah, more Protestant-based. Yeah, guess. it's like <laughs> when we make comics, it's like m making a log cabin in the woods. It's something that I get excited about when I see people going somewhere that's not comfortable. And, yeah. kind of, you know, shaking yeah, the bond, so to say. It's like that. Who's that? The, the Vincent Petit or whatever he is, like doing his man on wire, like tight roping. <laughs> In comics.
Um, so your trip to Morocco, was that, uh, did you already have Habibi in mind and that was like research or was it just somewhere you wanted to go and then influenced you? I did have Habibi in mind, but I don't think of that book or that trip as research. It, you know, it wasn't like the sort of thing that, uh, Joe Sacco does, like a sort of journalistic sort of meticulous research trip. It was an experiential trip. Yeah. I did want to I did want to go to an Islamic country. At that point I didn't have any friends or associates who were Muslim. And so I did want to uh go to Islamic country and the most geographically and politically accessible places were Turkey and Morocco coming from Europe. And uh I was really lured in by sort of these images of the the souks and old medinas in Marrakesh and Fez. So that's what basically drew me into Morocco. And it was, again, really geographically and politically accessible f from France, you know. Um, it's like, for I think for French people, it's just sort of, it's like going to Mexico. It's their little, like, vacation destination. Um, but for me, it was a little more exotic because I didn't speak, you know, I wasn't fluent in any form in French, and I didn't know Arabic language at all at that point. Um... And uh, it was an amazing experience. If I were doing it again, I would probably not do it solo. I think it. I think. But that said, it's easier to do a book like Carnet if you're traveling alone because you have a lot of free time to fill up. Yeah. But it's a lonely way to travel to you know certain places totally alone. I don't think I'd be able to uh, immerse myself as well as you were able to. Well, thank you. I, you know, <laughs> I don't. I don't think I was that graceful, but. Um, and I confess that, I mean, at a certain point, there's a point in, in my Morocco travels in Carnet where I befriended some Spanish travelers, and it was such a, like, sort of, like, stupid comfort to me to be around people who spoke English 
um, you know, it's a little embarrassing to be like, yeah, at a certain point I just wanted to take a break and rest on my, <laughs> you know, rest on it you know, uh, with Westerners and with a familiar language and, you know, and also have other people around me and not feel so alone. Well, why don't we jump into Habibi? Um, Let's do it. And, and the cultural immersion that it is. How well did you understand that culture when you jumped into it, into that book? And tell me about the, like, the research process to kind of create the ideas you're pushing forward. Uh, so this will be a little repetitive, just the beginning here, uh, from other interviews where people have asked me, you know, what inspired Habibi? And, and it was that I wanted to do, uh, you know, something outside of myself, and I either wanted to do, like, a fantastical epic um, in the sort of Tolkien-esque Lord of the Rings tradition or even a Jeff Smith bone tradition, mm. or I wanted to do something uh, nonfiction and sort of socially, politically relevant, like Joe Sacco's comics journalism. I, I was strangely, uh, you know, equally inspired by both. Um, and uh, from, from, you know, I was trying to figure out which direction I would head. And the first elements that emerged subconsciously were uh, that I wanted to do a book about child slaves. And Dodola and Zam sort of arrived, uh, presented themselves fully formed from my subconscious right there at the beginning. Their world didn't exist, but they existed. And so I'm like, I want to do this story about this prostitute and this eunuch and their child slaves. And I didn't know if they would exist in sort of a fantasy, you know, environment that had monsters and dragons and elves running around with their little curly toed slippers or what. <laughs> uh, but I was doing some research on um, just world slavery and... Uh, uh, and sort of got sucked into this sort of like landscape of sort of like the East African and North African Arab slave trade. Mm -hmm. um, it was new to me. It was sort of fascinating. And, and that sort of pointed me in the direction of like the Arabian Nights or 1001 Nights. And as I started reading that insane convoluted sort of volumes, um, um, I, I got really enticed by it as a genre. But, and the Arabian Nights as a genre and the way that cowboys and Indians is a genre um, and and uh, I was absorbing that sort of um, Richard Burton sort of fantastical take on Arabic folklore but then started researching more of about uh, the Quran and, and Islam and and, um, and then also like you know sort of Arabic storytelling so that's where it, that's the origins started there, and and so like sort of like the fantastical and um, the more contemporary sort of like research sort of like just sort of overlapped and got woven together. I definitely feel like there's a a, a very large allegorical allegorical excuse me I can't speak properly today uh, component to it as well. Yeah, growing up you know in a Christian community like. You know, you kind of look at all stories as allegory. Mm. It's sort of, it's sort of like, yeah, the, um, yeah. Um, <laughs> end of thought. Well, essentially, like I, I, when I first got it, I just like I read the first ten pages or first twenty pages, like, oh wow, he's already hitting on Noah, um, and it was fascinating to me, like you're really you're diving in there, 
head first and how does that make sense for the for like that context when you start looking at how these different uh Abrahamic religions interact with each other did that kind well, of add to your own knowledge or your own ideas definitely i mean that's that was the the earliest revelations when i started researching islam is is the the amount of connections between the Abrahamic faiths. Like it, mm -hmm. it felt like it was far more about connections than separations. So that was a, like, yeah, right from the start, that was a revelation to me. Um, and it was something I wanted to communicate. And as I, as sort of my social circle of Muslim friends and associates grew, it just seemed more apparent the connections between these people and, and the sort of Christian communities I grew up in really very few distinctions mm -hmm. much more similarities in terms of morals and 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 lifestyles and stories that shape them and and early on you know i wanted dodola to be a shahrazad character um someone who relied on storytelling for survival but then was imparting that storytelling to someone else for survival um and so Early on, I was I was kind of ripping off Arabian Nights, where one story would fold in on another, and they would be woven together. Um, and I think at first I had her like retelling some of these sort of Arabic folklore and sort of Arabian Nights tales. But then I felt like the uh, biblical Quranic stories were more interesting and probably more relevant. How much uh, intertwining is there between a lot of the the Quranic traditions with, say, Old Testament or New Testament? Uh, a lot. Um, f uh, you know, I started reading the Quran, and it seems like you, the the Quran definitely uh, benefits from biblical knowledge because all of the same um, Old Testament stories are there, but they're sort of uh, referenced in a more poetic way. It's like they um, assume that you have a a, a, a pre-existing knowledge of the biblical version, mm -hmm. and that that's sort of like where, uh, you know, sort of. Uh, Islam sprouted from it was sort of it, I think it perceived itself as um, an extension of a, uh, a revelation it was sort of Abrahamic's monotheism extending to a new people to the uh, to the Arabic people it's like the I think somewhere you use a quote is like calling it the last revelation yeah and I, I think Muhammad, Muhammad and, and, and his earliest, uh, you know, followers were were very reverent and respectful towards the Jews and Christians. They really thought of themselves as part of that community, and it only happened later where they were being rejected or attacked by other communities. Well, I mean, if you look at like a lot of our sources of knowledge come through that, like uh, a lot of classical literature we have because there were um, Arabic translations and. Um, especially in Spain where it was oh yeah definitely you know yeah and certainly in the sciences in mathematics I mean like the, you know those things were developing you know during the uh, you know the, the, the Arabics had the Arabs had their their uh, their renaissance really in a way before we did mm -hmm. so sort of like you know science and mathematics were developing we were still stuck in the uh, Middle Ages you know in Christian society getting plagues and whatnot. <laughs> yes. 
unhealthy times. <clears throat> or a less enlightened worldview at that time. <laughs> Not that it's changed that dramatically. No. Uh, how, how important is it to really grasp a hold of the idea of poverty in Habibi? How hard is it to grasp? No, how important is it to really, uh, for you as part of the story, that notion of that really raw poverty? I, I think it's crucial. Um, in the book, I, I, I at least was processing American guilt and the and the uh, you know the realization that like the wealth of our country only exists because it feeds off of poverty in other parts of the world, and I mean that that I think that exists on every scale. Like uh, there's wealth is uh, automatically exploitative and evil, in my opinion. It only exists by feasting off you know poverty, um, and but in being American and coming from and living in such a privileged sort of country, even if you're not rich in America, you're you're still like being a passive participant in sort of exploitation, especially you know with global globalization and global trade. So um, you know you're exploiting developing nations, um, and so yeah, in a way I was I was both processing 9/11 um, in a sense and sort of the sort of like political and economic motivations behind that terrorism and how America was such an you know was largely responsible for this sort of lashback yeah not that it's justified you know ter terrorism <laughs> isn't justified but you know when you yeah uh, you just start to realize like well no these things happen for a reason and, and we are responsible for the violence that happens to us um, and then in my travels too, I was able to see like how people in different parts of the world are. It seems like they're living in the the, the medieval ages in terms of their own existences and the sort of work they have to do. And meanwhile, that's sort of like brushing up right alongside like Western capitalism and consumerism. Um, I I can't tell if I'm babbling right now. No, but no, no. It, but I was, I was processing those things with Habibi. And it's funny, because you touch on a little bit, like, even in Carnet, that that poverty, but they, they have these value systems that, it, within that, like, the, that sense of family, that sense of belonging, um, that's kind of lost for us. Yeah, I don't think family values have ever really been that much of a part of American society. Even though we entertain those notions, yeah, uh, and we name, you know, name drop that terminology all the time, family values, especially on the conservative right, um, this seems like the least family values oriented culture <laughs> in the world. <laughs> like anywhere you go in the world, it's like there you can you have this sense of family and community, and you don't get that in America. Yeah, and probably not in Canada either. That'd be no. my assumption. No, we're pretty similar. I at least in my own experience, I'm pretty uh, non-family. Oriented, we're individuals. Like. <laughs> it was amazing. I was just in China, actually, and uh, and China is not the way it's presented in the West. I mean, obviously, they're notorious for exploitation of their own people, but uh, but that said, it doesn't feel like that uptight of a society. It feels it, it, it's almost warm and inviting in a sense, and the fact that everybody does everything in a sort of communal way really 
<laughs> it's, I mean, it's amazing. It's like, whoa, like every park is full of people doing, you know, martial arts and Tai Chi and dance and like <laughs> exercise and calligraphy and singing. All these things are done communally. Um, and just the sense of like, uh, I we befriended some Chinese tourists during our travels and uh, they were all co-workers on vacation together. It was like 10 co-workers. <laughs> and, and we're like, is this common to take a vacation with your co-workers? And they're like, yeah, of course, we're family. We do everything together. We live together. You know, like we moved from small towns to where we work and we all live in the same building together. We do every aspect of our lives together. And, uh, you know, that's the opposite of like America where everything is about the isolation of the individual that's yeah no but it, I, I can't wait to get away from my coworkers when I'm off shift <laughs> yeah, yeah, can you imagine like <laughs> well you know in a way though like when you say you travel and you travel with other cartoonists or you go and meet up with other cartoonists in your travels those are your coworkers those are your peers so yeah no I don't I don't that I haven't traveled very often with other cartoonists but you um, travel to other exceptions, but I've, you know, yeah, I, I guess because of comics, I've had the opportunity to travel a lot, you know. So, I have got to see, I've got to see a lot of the world, and it's all because of comics. <laughs> um, just on the on the note with China, uh, we in Vancouver at the art gallery, we had this amazing art show. This one fellow whose name I can't remember, uh, this Chinese artist, and he did this series of photos of um, these uh, men in a lake in this village he was from. It was all the men just kind of represent just like this community, how they're all together. And he would have like every male in his family that they knew of like his name, their name written on his body in ink. Uh-huh. It was just very fascinating just how he touched on that in a way of like how this there is this importance of family. Ooh, I want to know who that is. I I got to find send out. Me a link or something. It was it was a pretty fascinating show. He also did these uh, sculptures out of ashes, of uh, like busts out of ashes. It was really neat. So it was well, uh, when I was in Nanjing or Nanking, um, I went to the uh, the massacre memorial, the Nanjing massacre memorial, mm -hmm. which is it, which is a you know it's like going to the Holocaust museum. It's like a horrifying sort of. A tourist destination, and yet it is a huge tourist destination for Chinese people. Um, and it's the main part of it is an open grave site, so it's full of families and kids running around and playing and having a good time. And meanwhile, you're like looking down upon an open grave site full of human skeletons. It's such a surreal. Wow. Even, I, even that kind of stuff, I guess, of like um, integrating raw sort of, you know, tra tragedy into like you know like everyday society is, is overwhelming i guess that's the best way of just showing an impact of the tragedy of the massacre of just how 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 brutal it was yeah that that would probably be the best way of showing that um kind of we're getting sidetracked from uh just remind folks i'm talking to uh craig thompson right now uh we've been talking about his other books carnet de voyage blankets and uh, Goodbye Chunky Rice, and now we're diving into Habibi uh, out uh, this month in September from Pantheon Books, um, a tome of a book. One of the, it's a, it's a real deep 
kind of understanding of um, Middle Eastern traditions and storytelling. Um, did you really want to try and stay away from Western stories in this book for what you're weaving in? Uh, I, I, I don't know if there's a, a separation um, in terms of like we uh, many of us grew up with those Bible stories. Yeah. So they're very they're very similar. I don't know if you can separate the two. Um, and you know, I I I put a quote on my uh, uh, my doot doot blog recently from Elif Shafak, the uh, Turkish writer, uh, where she talks about like any separation really between the East and West is purely imagined. So in, in a way, that was my theme I was working with too. Of like these distinctions are make believe. Yeah, well, I think I think it's all important to kind of with the um, like the Old Testament, you know, it's a middle, you know, in contextually it is a Middle Eastern. Yeah, and I guess I should add too that uh, as much as I was drawing inspiration from from sort of Arabic tradition, um, I was also looking at Orientalism, sort of sort of the Western exploitative interpretation of the East. Um, I love all those sort of like a late 19th century French Orientalist paintings, mm-hmm. um, uh, like uh, Jerome, um, and uh, they're they're very exploitative. They're you know they're 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 a sensationalized view of the East or the Middle East, and they say more about Western cultures really than they do about Eastern. Um, so I mean. I was paying tribute to that too. Like this is self-consciously orientalist. It's not. It's in no <laughs> ways some sort of accurate, de- de- you know, depiction of these people. I'm, I'm, I'm. It's like cowboys and Indians. Like that's not an accurate de- depiction of the American West. It's a very sensationalized, um, you know, sort of fantasy landscape. What was there's a book on uh, by by a writer I forget his name on Orientalism. Edward Said. Yes, that's. And the I one. confess that I haven't gotten through that book. I own it and I've read <laughs> portions. I've, I've read portions of it. It's very academic. It's very good, but um, you know, it's just like one of the many books that I dabbled in but didn't fully commit to. Was I, mostly because I didn't. Need, I don't. I, I agree with him. I didn't need to be convinced. Like a, like a, I, I agree with. His his viewpoints of you know the sort of you know the the inherent racism in sort of Western depictions of the East. Yeah, and and maybe even just in some ways like consciously just calling it the East, calling it this something separate yeah, from where exactly you know it's it's not that far from France compared to where we are, me and you. Well, and it, <laughs> I, you know, it's the o- origin of all people. I mean. Yeah. I mean, well, I guess we all originated in Africa, but you know, then with the Tigris and Euphrates, those are like the first civilizations, really. So, all culture really stems from there. There's no separation. Yeah. No, it's uh, we're all just people, y'all. We all yep. just be people. Um, maybe some specifics within Habibi. You kind of cover different groupings. One group I was really interested in were the uh, the Ascetics, the 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 eunuchs. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Where were you getting some of the influence of, the, of that group from? What was that particular? Uh, well, the most uh, deliberate is from the Hijra in India and Pakistan, and uh, so those are societies that still exist. They're called the third gender, 
or third sex. And um, I think traditionally it was sort of like a safe place for people who in other cultures might be uh, identified as homosexual. Mm -hmm. But it might be more broad than that too. You know, it could be uh, transgendered people, transsexual people. Um, and I think traditionally in those societies there was a certain reverence for them in the same way that sort of indigenous culture had had a reverence towards, you know, people that might be transgendered or homosexual. And I think their role in society has shifted dramatically in recent years. I think they're thought of a little bit like pests and annoyances, and they're also associated with sort of like a dirty side of society of like prostitution. But I saw as drawing on both those histories around the hijra. And the hijra aren't... Uh, Muslim. I mean, there are Muslim hijra, there, there are Hindi uh, hijra, and there's just like agnostic or sort of atheistic clans of these these people. Mm -hmm. But that's primarily where I was drawing from, uh, like the inspiration from, for this sort of group that Zam is sucked in with. And it's a... <laughs> oh, sucked in is the word to use. But... <laughs> uh, finds place in. Yes. Uh, it's interesting in uh, uh, native tradition in the Pacific Northwest. I think probably more other First Nations groups. They have this idea of two spirited, which is like it'd be uh, kind of very similar within um, clans or groups where there would be you know folks identify in the dis different way, and they would have their place among the women. Um, but it would be this be you know be also something special identified with these people. Yeah, I like that. That's a that's a great way of, of so, looking at it, is two-spirited. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, I think there's even a, a biblical tradition that that the original humans were hermaphroditic, or they were like both sexes in one until they were separated. And so there's some people that still like have this sort of divine connection to both you know, sexes simultaneously. In the book, you also... <laughs> <laughs> I think we're in agreement. We're, we're <laughs> uh, you also... Um, there's a lot of play on numbers and letters. And I'm curious within your writing, how well did you learn how to write in... Is it Arabic? Yes, it's Arabic. But no, I don't, um, I don't write Arabic and... I must have created the illusion that I do. Um, <laughs> I, I know all I know is the twenty-eight letters of the alphabet um, that I can recognize, and so if I know an Arabic word, I can kind of recognize it in a sentence mm -hmm. based on the spelling. Uh, but I can't read it or speak it. And the uh, there's a couple different forms of how I I used Arabic calligraphy in Habibi. One was just pure like uh, tracing and sampling. I would find reference from all different sources and then sort of integrate that into my compositions. Um, and then at other times I would write things in English and have a friend translate it into Arabic and then I would typeset those in uh, TextEdit on my Mac, which is the, <laughs> only program, it's the only program I could find that like seemed to uh, function well with sort of Arabic fonts. And, uh, and then I would uh, kind of compose things digitally and then trace them with a brush. It's so there was like a sort of like understructure that was done on computer because I can't just write Arabic by hand. Um, and then I would I would re, re trace it basically on a light box with a brush. 
It's funny. Um, I'm just thinking back to when you were talking earlier about with blankets, how it is a really simple story. And with this, it is, in a lot of ways, a very simple love story that all these added features are what kind of really makes it a step above. Yes. Yeah, I, I think at, at some point Zam describes um, this thing that there are seven layers of heaven above and seven layers of hell below and mm -hmm. one layer in between where all of human existence takes place. And that's my attitude towards the book. Like it takes place on that middle layer, the 15th layer, but you kind of have to peel through seven layers of heaven and seven layers of hell to get to it. How well did you have to understand like numerology? Did you dive into any of that in your research? Uh, so what happened was that the the first draft of Habibi was fairly was really linear. It was chronological, mm -hmm. and I was just drawing one panel after another in my sketchbooks in a sort of stream of conscious way, and it was flowing up until a certain point where I became completely creatively blocked. I didn't know what the next panel would be. I, I had no idea where the story was continuing. And I went back and reread everything, and it felt really flat and lifeless to me. And uh, it was that time that I rediscovered in my notebooks the uh, the nine point the I'm sorry the nine uh, the three by three magic square. Okay. Um, and uh, and it was like this sort of North African talisman, sort of like a Arabic sudoku. Um, which I recognized could be a structure for the book. And uh, at that point, I started breaking down what I had into nine chapters and having each chapter be completely informed by its numerical value, by both the Arabic letter and its numeric value. So I had to start thinking about a chapter as, like, this chapter is represented by the number three. It's like an episode of Sesame Street. This chapter is, you know, devoted to the number three, and uh, what does that number itself mean, mm -hmm. and what themes are attached to it? So e each chapter had, um, I mean, there was the continuing narrative of Dodola and Zam, but there was also, um, each chapter was devoted to one Arabic letter, it was devoted to one number, and it was devoted to one prophet of Islam. And those prophets are... are the same sort of Judeo-Christian sort of biblical prophets that we grow up with of Noah and 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 Abraham and Moses and whatnot. And each Does that answer the question or is that getting off track? No, I think that answers the question. Okay. <laughs> um, there's been a lot of stuff we're going over. It's uh, yeah. It's it, it's interesting. Like there's, it's definitely one of those books where I think I'll probably read again, and have more things that pop up and more ideas of what's yeah. working yeah. in my head yeah. and, I, and I find that really fascinating um, it just doesn't let go <laughs> good <laughs> that's what I want to hear um, I have some other questions about just different miscellaneous things um, okay. one is you talk a lot about um, your wounds and you make a mention of uh, rheumatoid arthritis. Do you have rheumatoid arthritis? Is that something? No, I don't. Okay. Um, when I came back from the, the Carnet uh, trip, uh, my first agenda was like getting a handle on my health. And I started with like 
a Western doctor, and uh, they quickly diagnosed my what was happening to my hands as uh, just ganglion cysts growing on my joints. And it's pretty every single like uh, finger joint I has have has one of these cysts. Uh, and they said they could surgically remove them, but they would just come back. And yeah. on top of that, like it's a very delicate, dangerous place to remove them from. Um, so they recommended against it, and so I was pursuing different kinds of of alternative medicines, um, and uh, and that included naturopathy, homeopathy, uh, massage therapy, acupuncture, and finally uh, I focused on psychotherapy or just you know therapy, and that was in a way the most helpful for me. And the pain hasn't gone away, and the issue hasn't gone away, but uh, I'm much more designed to cope with the pain. I'm tougher. Because I think <laughs> before, the sort of pain had an emotional connection to it in the way that sometimes like your body takes emotional traumas and it em- embodies them physically. Yeah. And I think my body has done that. Uh, but because I've dealt with a lot of the emotional issues, the pain doesn't as- affect me as much. And it was very crippling before. Like I could barely draw. I definitely couldn't make a fist. I couldn't like do that. And now I've, you know, I went rock climbing twice this summer. I have a lot more like uh, flexibility in my hands and and strength in them, even though the pain is still there. I was curious. So that's where I'm at. One of the reasons I was asking is also if you had any suggestions for other cartoonists as far as self care when you're doing a lot of drawing and you are getting. Uh, exercise probably <laughs> I mean for me too I mean I used I used to be more intense of a workaholic like there was I was working all the time and there was no moment that I wasn't working and your body is eventually going to break down no matter what under those conditions um, and these days I'm and, and, and I have the privilege of, of being able to actually make a living doing comics now which I never had before mm-hmm. but uh, so now I'm more of a 9 to 6 work a day sort of schedule like there's there's a cutoff point from drawing in my days do you cut <laughs> so off? I have time to rest and do other things which is crucial I mean for anyone in the long term you know like having a career in comics is like being a marathon re- runner you have to pace yourself you're not sprinting the whole time otherwise you're going to break down and probably shit your pants <laughs> um, but no. and, uh, and then ex- just some, some basic exercise you know like you have to kind of like undo the damage of hunching over a drawing desk by having some sort of routine exercise routine out of that outside of that and i i started surfing i and, I, and I, i'm totally a poser surfer because i haven't actually got out to surf very very much this year but there were things like that that i started sort of like to drag myself out of the the depression i'd wound up in like i had to sort of like uh do things with my body like sort of pull my consciousness out of my brain or out of my head I was like an untethered balloon and just like draw some of my energy back into my body for survival and and surfing is a good thing for that because it uses every element of your body and like you kind of puts you in sort of life or death situations sometimes and those, those are healthy well you'll have to come up to uh, Vancouver Island sometime and try surfing on the west coast I would love to sur- surf out there I have been. I I I was out in Washington at one point on the coast with a orca, and uh, 
I am pretty obsessed with sea creatures. I would like to get closer to orca. Although I have met a man who was attacked by an orca, believe it or not. My dad told me a story because he used to be a total hippie and lived on the beach for several, several, several years. And my sister is even born on the west coast of the island. On the beach. Um, wow. Yeah, and so he told me a story of how once when he was canoeing, uh, I don't know what kind of whale it was, it just came up right next to him and just kind of uh -huh. went with him and just, like, seeing into this massive eye. Oof. That's intense. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I, I'm fascinated, but I'm also terrified. I, I went on a shark cage on Oahu, which was is one of my favorite experiences of my life. But, you know, it's that sort of mixture of fear and reverence <laughs> towards those sort of creatures. One last question in fear and reverence. What's it like playing laser tag with Louis Trondheim? <laughs> <laughs> I'm horrible at those sort of things. Any kind of war game, like I've done paintball and stuff like that before. Like in, like I, there's like nothing in my wiring that I'm I'm really wired as a pacifist, so I'm not really designed to shoot back. Maybe I'm a little better now. Now I've gotten a little tougher. But, but even laser tag, I found sort of emotionally traumatic because there it's just a sort of war mentality in involved. Um, and so I was the worst. I was I, I sucked at that. It sounded amazing. <laughs> it is especially it's especially awkward when you're like the adults in those sort of like you know situations because those are laser tag is for children and so you just feel creepy. You feel like you know someone hanging out at Chuck E. Cheese or something. <laughs> but you know, and that said, doing it with Lewis, I mean Lewis, I love that guy. He's you know he kind of makes all situations he. Uh, Oh, this is in Carnet, so it's repetitive of me. But at one point, we were uh, we were sitting at an outdoor cafe, and this like clown came up, and he was you know had like a boombox, and he was trying to perform in front of everybody for for money, and we were both very insulted and bothered by his presence. And Lewis said, you know, all of like everything that humans do is is pathetic. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> And he's like, you can always laugh at humans because everything we do is pathetic. And and I found that very like, comforting in a weird way and very humorous. <laughs> I, uh, I I don't know how I feel about that. I love it and I hate it. <laughs> you know, it can be a very cynical and, and, and destructive way to look at everything or an optimistic sort of enlightened way to look at everything. Like, like ah, all human experience. <laughs> Grasping at the wind, you're just like a pathetic clown in front of everybody. You know, like <laughs> I, I, I hate to leave us off on that. But... Oh, is that her? <laughs> There's something humble about it, though. Yeah, yeah. There should be humility in all you do. There we go. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today, Craig. Just yeah, thank you, Robin. to remind folks, uh, I was speaking with Craig Thompson, and the books are Habibi, out this month. From Pantheon, Carnata Voyage, Blankets, Goodbye Chunky Rice, and uh, more uh, at doot, is it dootdootgarden.com? Yep, that's my blog. Uh, there's also habibibook.com. Oh, there we go. Which is a website my brother and I created devoted to the book. And then, yeah, whatever else will be out there. Um, September 20th. There we go. Never forget. Thank you so much, Craig. Thank you, Robin. It was great.
Across the line 